News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the biggest issues we've dealt with since the pandemic started has been disinformation. Just about COVID-19, now dealing with, you know, problems with disinformation regarding COVID-19 vaccines. I mean, it's been widespread. And we're learning now that Canadian intelligence officers believe that foreign actors are helping to spread that misinformation. Joining us now for more on this is Global News investigative journalist Stuart Bell. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning. So what do we know? Like, What does CSIS know about what's going on? Well, it turns out that uh, they've been monitoring the pandemic and its impact on uh, Canadian national security issues. And one of those issues is clearly the misinformation that you mentioned. Uh, there's just so much misinformation that's floating around and, you know, you can see its impact, um, you know, when you just watch the news. But what uh, what CSIS is saying here is that um, some of that is part of a deliberate disinformation campaign that's been mounted by, uh, particularly by three of Canada's uh, adversaries, Russia, China, and Iran. So is this a a report that Global News has obtained, and and what else did we learn in it? Yeah, well, we we, uh, filed an access information request to CSIS for documents, uh, you know, related to the pandemic and national security issues, and we received... uh, uh, a fair number of reports, actually, and this is certainly one of the key issues here is uh, the kind of state-sponsored disinformation that some countries have been engaging in in quite a you know a reckless manner. Right. Um, and you know, you, I guess, if you're an authoritarian state, uh, you seize any opportunity to advance your issues or strategic objectives, and this is seems to be what's happening in this case. And what ex- what are they doing? Like, how are they spreading that information? Well, I mean, it's largely online um, through social media, but uh, each of these countries kind of takes a different approach. For Russia, it seems to be just the continuation of its uh, ongoing efforts to undermine the West and Western liberal democracy. Uh, so spreading, you know, the kind of disinformation that makes the West look bad or blames the West for the virus. And and as I said, as part of its broader long-term agenda to uh, to create tension in the West and conflict in the West and undermine the West and and thereby, therefore, you know, raise its own uh, international stature. For China, it's a little bit different. They seem to be more interested in deflecting attention away from their own failures by blaming others. So, with China, we've seen them uh, actually quite openly um, amplifying conspiracy theories that have uh, COVID-19 as being something was cooked up in a U.S. weapons lab. You know, com- completely right. uh, no evidence at all for this, but something that takes the pressure off China as the source of um, the virus. And Iran, in a similar fashion, because they've had such a devastating impact in Iran. Uh, they've tried to deflect attention to the West as well. And in their case, in particular, to try and blame uh, U.S. sanctions for for their pandemic. Hmm. Have the embassies of those countries had any reaction to this? Oh, the Chinese embassy has denied uh, any involvement in disinformation, although there is, all you have to do is go online to see <laughs> evidence of that. Uh, Russia has not responded. Iran doesn't have a 
embassy in Canada, so we weren't able to speak to them. So if we know that these countries are doing this, to or clearly, you know, CSIS believes this is going on, is there anything that's being done to combat it? Well, I mean, the, the way you combat uh, disinformation and misinformation is with real verifiable information, and sometimes by exposing the sources of misinformation. And uh, that, you know, may be a little bit of what CSIS is doing in this case, calling out different countries so that people are aware that um, some of the falsehoods that are circulating um, are, you know, they are part of a deliberate campaign to try and um, influence the way people think. So, I mean, you know, again, the, the uh, just uh, as a uh, um, as all media news media lets right. know, or responsible ones anyway, that uh, um, the way to um, combat misinformation is to be a more discerning reader of news and to ascertain and verify the sources of the information that you're consuming. All right. Oh, fascinating stuff, Stuart. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That's Stuart Bell, Global News investigative journalist. For more on this story, you can check it out at globalnews.ca. But essentially, it's through access to information uh, requests that uh, Stuart and others made at Global News that uh, turned out to show that CSIS has actually been actively monitoring disinformation campaigns from countries like Iran, China, and Russia operating in Canada, trying to influence Canadians and spread disinformation. It reminds me of that story in the last last 24 hours about the concerns about COVID-19 vaccines. Now there's a lot of disinformation out there about that to the point where three former U.S. presidents, so you've got Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton, uh, and of course this is the story I saw on CNN last night, saying that they will get the COVID-19 vaccine live on television to prove its safety and to encourage other Americans to do that. That's the kind of state of affairs, right? That they're willing to go to those lengths to show people that if we do this, you can do this too. But it is kind of because of campaigns like Stuart was just talking about there. So if you want to read more about it, globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, every month we wait for those jobs numbers to come out because we want to know how is the economy doing? Are employers, well, are they still having faith that things will be okay? Are they hiring? What's going on? Well, normally this is the time of year when job postings would kind of decline, right? As people get ready for the holidays and all of that. But one of the hiring websites out there, Indeed.ca, is actually showing a steady appetite for hiring more people. Now, the official results of the November Labor Force Survey will come out tomorrow morning. But once again, we're going to take a bit of a preview of that with the help of Brendan Bernard, who's an economist with Indeed.ca. Brendan, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so that sounds like things, for, from your perspective, from Indeed's perspective, look a bit positive for November. Well, we've got a mixed bag. We've seen the virus surge around the country. Uh, we've, we're, we're seeing Canadians being a bit less active in terms of their daily activity. So you can really see it in restaurant reservations. Um, people are eating out less. Their signs, they're, they're moving around a little bit less. And that, that, that I think, is going to impact the pandemic-exposed sectors that have really been affected by this crisis all along, accommodation and food services being uh, the main category. That said, when we look at the job posting numbers and employer hiring appetite, it seems like in many areas of the economy, employers are just saying, you know what, 
let's focus on 2021. We've got a vaccine coming. It looks like there's some light on the at the end of the tunnel. You know, we just got to get through this rush, rough patch and hopefully things will start getting back to normal. Okay, so what kind of areas are still hiring at this point? Well, so we have a, several different areas where job postings have really returned to last year's trend and in some cases are even exceeding it. Uh, so um, healthcare, quite strong, uh, loading and stocking, construction, driving, tech, uh, a bunch of different range of sectors where hiring appetite is, is has really gotten back to normal. And then we have a whole other category uh, of uh, sectors of the economy where things aren't quite back where they were at this time last year, but they're gradually approaching there. So administrative assistance, management, um, uh, maintenance and installation, just pretty widespread areas of the economy. Um, that are carrying uh, overall hiring appetite back to kind right. of solid levels. And then a few areas of the economy um, where conditions are way down, some of which uh, it'll just be tough for them to get back to normal uh, as long as the pandemic's here. So are there a lot of postings then? And are those jobs being filled or you know, are employers having a good time of getting them filled or is it a tougher time to get them filled? You know, I think that partially depends on the kind of job. So we've seen uh, a shift in job seeker interest across roles uh, since the start of the crisis, where job seekers tend to be um, shying away a bit from lower paying, less remote friendly work. Um, so one example uh, I, I mentioned earlier was food ser- the, the food service world. Um, Job postings and food services aren't getting the same kind of relative interest uh, that they that they were before the crisis. Um, you know, and, and it's a, it's a combination of a few factors, uh, with the the pandemic being a, a big one. That um, you know, in, in some of these types of jobs where uh, you know there are health risks and you're not getting paid a lot. Um, for your work that people uh, might might be less less interested in them at, at this time. And really, like, right. we're going to have to see uh, how, how things uh, look once the sort of fog of the pandemic lifts uh, uh, if, right. if people start jumping back into those roles. Now, Brenda, Brenda, do you think people have moved out of those industries then? So they've said, you know what, that's not going to come back. I've got to find a job doing something else. And then that doesn't sound like it would bode well for the restaurant and food services industry. Well, so some people uh, definitely have moved out. But that said, when we look at the Canadian labor market overall, there's still a pretty wide gap in jobs between where we are now, at least as of October, and where things were in February. Um, A huge, a a pretty large portion, almost 80% of the jobs lost at the start of the crisis uh, have been recouped, according to the Labor Force Survey. And still that remaining gap is actually larger of an employment gap than we ever reached during the 2008-2009 recession. So looking from the bottom, the Canadian labor market has recouped a lot. And yet compared to normal periods, uh, the job market is definitely not back to normal. And so um, uh, as, as, these, uh, uh, as the pandemic eventually winds down, we don't know when, but as it eventually winds down, that's going to be a shot into the, in the arm to these industries. Right. And there's still quite elevated unemployment that um, it, 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 at least some of those jobs shouldn't have a 
too difficult of time getting filled. And, and we didn't actually have that traditional kind of retail hiring period this year, did we? Uh, it was less than uh, than normal. So we tracked holiday job postings um, uh, on Indeed this year, and, and they were definitely uh, weaker than they they were last year. Um, you know, we've shift, seen a shift in uh, uh, in retail spending to e-commerce. Um, malls definitely not not the same draw, and, and job seekers were, weren't quite as interested uh, in, in those roles in general. And and whatever retail hiring uh, uh, season we were going to have, you know, if you were looking at things in maybe uh, the start of the fall, uh, September, when right. uh, holiday hiring starts to pick up. Well, we've had a surge in the pandemic since. And in fact, in the Toronto area, um, a lot of non-essential retail uh, isn't even open right now. Um, and, and so it, it, it's not a normal season. Uh, it won't be a normal end to the year. Um, I think, though, a lot of employers are saying, let's look to next year. Okay. Well, like so many of us are. Thank you very much for that, yeah. Brendan. Thanks for having me. That's Brendan Bernard, who's an economist with Indeed.ca, kind of previewing those November labor force survey numbers, which actually officially come out tomorrow, which will show us where you know jobs are at for the economy for the month of November uh, from Indeed's perspective, which is a website that posts jobs for people. They say there still is a steady appetite for hiring. It's just in certain sectors. Uh, and I do wonder if people who were previously in the food services you know, industry or working in restaurants have decided that that, you know what, that's not, job's not fully going to come back, or maybe you worked in the hospitality sector, and, and now they're maybe looking elsewhere. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, maybe you're one of the many, many people who got a pandemic puppy out there or some kind of pandemic pet. You're not alone. Uh, we got a new puppy about, oh, four weeks ago now. We were talking to Robin Crawford from the Global Newsroom earlier. She got a pandemic puppy way back in, I think, March, April. So, yeah, lots of people have done this. But, you know, it doesn't work out for everyone. Let's talk to Nikki Reitmeyer about that this morning. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, and we're not just talking about your new pandemic puppy peeing on the hardwood floors. <laughs> I mean, oh boy. it may yeah. not. Yeah, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> it may not work out because there are lots of pet scammers out there who are looking to take advantage of people who want to get a pandemic puppy or kitten. Yeah, no kidding. And because it's not cheap, right? And you're willing to shell out some bucks. Yeah, that's in fact, that's one of the points that the Better Business Bureau raised as being a red flag that you should look out for if you do want to look online to get a pet, which, you know, we can talk about that in a minute anyways. But they said, figure out what a realistic price is for the pet that you want to purchase. So, you know, if you want to get a, a cute little puppy and typically that breed sells for, I don't know, let's say $1,000 is what you can typically purchase one of those puppies for. And you either see an insanely expensive price online or what's probably more likely is you see that same breed being sold for $500 and you think, oh, geez, what a great deal. I'll get that one. Well, yeah, the yeah, scammers no. know that they're going to lure you in by giving you this unrealistic price that you'll be, you know, tempted to jump on such a great deal and think, geez, well, I've got to get, snap up one of these puppies quickly before everybody else does. But lo and behold, it turns out to be a scam yeah. when you wire transfer them the money. I would love to know the psychology. You're a psych major. So you tell us what is the psychology behind <laughs> that, that, that inability to resist what seems like a good deal, even though you may have something in your brain that also tells you, I don't know if it's too good to be true. It usually is. But you feel like, oh, I just I can't risk this not being a good deal. 
Well, it's those same tricks that they play on us, right? When you're watching an infomercial yes. on TV and they say, only one minute left to call, only 58 seconds left to call, 55 seconds left to call, the deal's going to end. And you think, oh my goodness, I need to jump on this. And I think that it plays out in our lives in, in so many different ways. You know, it was just a funny kind of side note to this. I was looking at something yesterday online and they were saying they even do it with popcorn at the movie theater when you go to buy popcorn. The small is typically what I think most people would probably get. But then, you know, the, the large is always so expensive. So they throw the medium in there at still somewhat of an expensive price, but you think it's still a better deal than the large. So you buy the medium instead. It's these funny little psychology tricks, basically, that they play on us. Yeah. But it all goes back to how fraudsters work as well. They play these same little tricks on you that lure you into their scams. You know what? You're, that's so right about the popcorn. I was just thinking of like going to a fast food restaurant. And they never have the small fries. Like all I ever want is a small fries. I don't want the giant container of fries. But they don't advertise the small fries. Yeah. Exactly. And then compared to the price of the large, you think, well, the medium is actually not a bad deal. So uh, yeah, I think I'll just get that instead. But uh, I mean, really, what you what you went in there to purchase was the small for yeah. you know, 99 <laughs> cents. And you end up walking out with something much more expensive that you didn't want in the first place. But, and you're convinced it's a better deal. Oh, boy. So how much money are Canadians losing to these pet scams? Yeah, this is certainly not just a, a one-off trend. The Better Business Bureau is estimating that fraudsters will scam more than $3 million out of would-be pet buyers this year in Canada. And I don't think it would surprise you if, you know, I told you that that's going to be a little bit higher than what it was in years past, because as you mentioned right at the beginning of this conversation, there's more people who want to purchase pets this year because of the pandemic. So they are seeing an increase in that. We saw it through the summer, of course. We saw it when people were first uh, working from home or were laid off because they had more time to, to raise a young animal. And I think we're going to see it again spike around Christmas time, because for people who want to get their kids a pet, perhaps, for, for Christmas, they're thinking about this, or for people who now have a bit more certainty in what their future is going to look like with their employer. Maybe the employer is saying, yeah, we're going to keep people at home until next summer. A lot of companies are putting out their schedules now for what the future is going to look like. So people go, okay, well, I can get a pet because I know that I'm going to be working from home or you know, my spouse right. is going to be working from home until next spring. Well, that's exactly what Robin was saying, or Robin Crawford from the Global Newsroom, is that you know, she doesn't know what she's going to do if she has to come back to work, but she's pretty she's all right for now because she's been home with this puppy for like six months now. Yeah, exactly. You know, you raise it to a certain age and, but there's, there's so much you have to be aware of when it comes to buying pets online. Anyways, I know that we talked to the SPCA recently about this and they certainly don't recommend it because, you know, you're opening up a door to start purchasing from puppy mills or kitten mills when yeah. you're shopping online. So you really have to be careful and you really have to make sure that you're going through a reputable breeder and the SPCA recommended before, you know, make sure that you're not going on Craigslist or Kijiji. And if you are, then please, please, please do your research because A, it, it might be a scam. You might be getting scammed out of your money and there's no pet at all. The other side of it is there may be a pet, but it may be a pet from a puppy mill or a kitten mill where they're being bred in not great conditions and certainly not conditions that we want to encourage. So, right. there, you know, there is lots of red flags. If you are going to be shopping online, make sure that you're doing it through a reputable breeder. But best, just, just go to the SPCA, go to an, yes. or any other any other wonderful adoption organization in BC. Speaking of the SPCA, I saw a story yesterday where remember the husky puppies? 
Mm, no, refresh that? my memory. No, you don't remember when they had to rescue all those husky puppies, and so then they had to, and they're all the pictures, and people. No, just I went don't read crazy. these stories, Simi. I I can't Why? read them. I because it makes me sad. But they, <laughs> I try to avoid these stories. <laughs> well, this was a good news story. They had rescued all these poor husky puppies. This is a year ago. I couldn't believe it's been a year already. And so you can go online to globalnews.ca and check this out because they they checked up on the puppies after one year, and oh. all of them are thriving, and they look great, and they they were just the sweetest thing, and. I remember the SBCA was just overwhelmed with people who wanted to adopt these puppies for their forever home. So it's a good news story. Nikki, you can actually read this one. Okay. That warms my heart. I'm going to go look this story up now on Global's website. (laughs) Thank you for that, Nikki. That is our Nikki Reitmeyer there. This is Mornings with Simi. The situation that we find ourselves in right now, we were just talking about with Richard Zussman about people, there's a lot, awful lot of too many people out there who seem to think that they are the exception to the rule. I have this uh, email from someone who wants to remain anonymous who said, I still have a couple of family members on my wife's side who still go out for dinners at friends' houses. They still go out on social events. I asked them why they think it's okay to break the rules. Answer was, oh, they are talking about us. It's large groups. And they got annoyed when they invited us for Christmas. And we said that this year might be a Skype Zoom Christmas. What to do, this person said. Ugh, do I report them? Do I do nothing and let them keep breaking the rules? and I'm stuck at home. Yeah, I know. That's the frustration. What to do with all these people who just seem to think that, oh, they're not talking about me. Newsflash, they are talking about you. You're the reason why we have all these increasing rules. For instance, last night, new rules surrounding sports, and there's some confusion about that. Our own global news reporter, Janet Brown, spoke with hockey parents about these new sports rules last night in Cloverdale. And a mom at the rink said she has been following the updates, but she still didn't realize how youth sports would be impacted. I was quite surprised because uh, when I listened today, she was just talking about adult sports. Um, I just learned right now that that, uh, minor sports are going back to phase two. Um, A little disappointed. Um, I find that our association has been really awesome with the protocols. I feel like my kid is safe. He's wearing a mask to and from the bench. He's um, um, doing everything he can to feel safe and uh, and just disappointed they're not getting to play what they love playing. You know what? I'm disappointed for them, too, because I know it's really important for kids. But the problem is adults are ruining it, right? That's what we heard, is that beer league hockey, old timers hockey team traveled to Alberta. That was just one example, they said, of many of adult hockey teams doing too much traveling, too much socializing. And now there's community transmission as a result of those cases. Uh, Now, we also heard from a hockey dad who said, in many ways, this has all been hardest on the kids. I'm of two minds on it. It's first of all, I empathize with Bonnie Henry. I think she's been doing a great job, and you know, it's it's not an easy situation. And I don't think anyone's going to have any idea what the right thing was to do until you know we look back at this in five years. But I think what leads to the confusion, certainly for the kids, is what appears to be inconsistencies. Now, I understand that we're not privy to all the information that the health authorities are, but. You know, you have kids that you say can't be on the ice together in 40, but yet as I'm driving here today, I hear that Gross has, you know, under 50 people in their sky ride. So, and I think that's probably what's getting to people. You know, I'm glad that my kid can still play. You know, we're upset that we watch, but it's a small sacrifice that we can't watch this year, that our kids still get the chance to play. But, you know, to put further restrictions in, and I, and I don't understand, for a lot of kids, this is their mental health. You know, we talk about how important school is. 
for the mental health of the kids. But for a lot of kids, this is it. They're opportunities to get out, to play sports, you know, not only for mental health, but for physical activity as well. In a time when they're not even allowed to go out with their friends, even if they're in the same cohort at school. So it's really tough to explain that to kids. And I think, again, what may appear as inconsistent to us, maybe because we don't have all the information, but if we're having trouble grasping it, you know, 15-year-old boys are having a little more hard, you know, harder time trying to grasp that. I understand. I'm sympathetic to that. But the thing is, we do have all the information. We know what's going on. We know what's happening out there. And if they can just quit doing this for a couple of weeks, quit doing what you're doing for a couple of weeks, you might have a chance at perhaps seeing somebody at Christmas time. Maybe, just maybe. But don't see any sign of that happening right now with the way people are behaving. This is Mornings with Simi. What I actually found was at the point of care and in the, in the clinical setting, uh, fairly widespread racism circulating throughout the healthcare system in BC. Now that's Mary Ellen Terpelophon speaking with our Jill Bennett on CKNW a couple of days ago. That's when she released her report on systemic racism within the BC healthcare system. And remember, this all stemmed from those reports about six months ago or so that hospital staff were playing a Price is Right style game, trying to guess the blood alcohol level of Indigenous patients, right? Horrific anecdote. And that was the beginning of, you know, looking into this situation. So joining us now to talk about the report and how it's going to impact them going forward is the president of the BC Nurses Union, Christine Sorensen. Christine, thank you for being here this morning. Oh, good morning. Glad to be here. So let's talk about this report. What kind of impact has it had at the BCNU? Have you read through it? Oh, yes, absolutely read through it and had a meeting with uh, Mary Ellen Tupelifond uh, prior to the report being released uh, to walk through every section of the report and understand how deeply and widespread the racism uh, is in healthcare. Are these stories, Christine, that you had heard about? Like nurses must see this. They must know about this. Well, just to clarify, you know, as in the report, the Price is Right game was not validated. Uh, that that was the impetus to start the investigation, but uh, as there was no validation to that re- that particular game. Um, but we do know that uh, people do estimate uh, levels of alcohol or drug use uh, in order to treat patients, and that was uh, and that was validated in the report. Unfortunately, uh, I was very saddened to, to find out. Uh, that uh, we did discover that systemic racism against Indigenous people in the healthcare system uh, is widespread, and this is completely unacceptable. I've had a number of um, nurses kind of email me over the last few days saying that maybe what we need to do is also make sure there's more diversity in the number of nurses that we recruit. Do you think that would help the situation? Is there enough diversity in the nursing industry? Well, first of all, we have a severe nursing shortage in British Columbia, and I think we need to do more to recruit uh, nurses in general uh, and advance um, the numbers of nurses that are are entering our nursing education program. We can always do more uh, to increase diversity in our in our nursing education programs and in our nursing profession. Uh, And we do have, you know, good diversity, but it could be better. So what will the BCNU do with this report then? 
Well, the BCNU has uh, been actively involved uh, in promoting uh, social justice issues and uh, certainly the work of Indigenous uh, peoples. In 2005, we established an Indigenous leadership circle within our own organization in order to give voice uh, to Indigenous nurses and help advance Indigenous health status outcomes. Uh, so we will continue to bring this issue, these issues forward. Uh, we have been working with the employers uh, to to ensure that workplaces are safe and psychologically healthy, uh, and that Indigenous uh, patients are cared for equally uh, as other patients in our system. Uh, there was also a lot of discussion about kind of making sure that within the frontline workers that they were eligible to be protected by a like whistleblower legislation. Do you think that's important then for frontline nurses to be able to say, listen, if I see something, I need to be able to report it anonymously and be protected? Yes, I do believe that's important. You know, one of the struggles that nurses have and other healthcare professionals is that we can't speak out or speak up as as was identified uh, in the report because of the fear of repercussions. Uh, we are told that we can't talk about our patients, we can't talk about the challenges within the healthcare system, and we understand the risk to patient privacy. Um, but there are is there is important information the public needs to hear and know about uh, what is going on in their healthcare system. Uh, and unions do bring forward those issues, but individual healthcare providers, individual nurses are unable to do so. Right. So would you support the government changing that to, to include frontline workers then? Yes, I do agree. I think that uh, we do need to have whistleblower protection in the healthcare system. We do need to allow nurses to bring forward these issues about uh, racism and other institutional co- uh, concerns uh, so that we can make change, change that makes our healthcare system better and protects the patients. Okay, so what, what are some other things that you think could be done at this point, Christine, to improve the situation? Well, I think we have to go back and look at some of the the recommendations that are in the report. And we do welcome Recommendation 20, which calls for a refreshed approach to anti-racism, cultural humility, and trauma-informed training for healthcare workers. I think that's important not only in the education programs that healthcare workers are taking, um, but also in the workplace. I think the employers, uh, healthcare employers, do need to offer cultural humility training uh, for all nurses and other healthcare workers. uh, And they do need to continue to support an environment where people can speak up. Well, we'll see what happens. Christine, thank you for your time on this. Thank you so much for hearing from us. That's Christine Sorensen, president of the BC Nurses Union, responding to the report that came out earlier this week from Mary Ellen Terpelafond. And one of the things that we really, I think, were struck by when reading through that and listening to the coverage of it is that frontline healthcare workers for some reason, are not covered under whistleblower protection legislation. So nursing staff or you know doctors working on the front lines can't report something that they see or hear or something that happened that they are uncomfortable with or think was wrong and not be protected by whistleblower legislation. That is the big recommendation coming out of this report that we hope the government will address very quickly. Uh, but again, getting more diversity in the ranks of nurses as well will help, as you heard Christine Sorensen say. This is Mornings with Simi. Seeing your loved one who is in a long-term care home has become a huge issue during this pandemic. And we also know that when it comes to staffing those long-term care homes, well, that's also been a challenge. So we heard about this care home in Abbotsford that is actually hiring residents' family members. And they put that out there 
to the resident's family members to say, hey, listen, this is a great way for you to see your family, you know, loved one that is here, but also we need some help. We need some some people to come and work here. But get this, 48 family members did apply. And now other people with loved ones in other care homes are thinking maybe they would like the same option too. So joining us now to talk more about this is Terry Lake, BC Care Providers CEO. Terry, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me again, Simi. What is the staffing situation like in the long-term care industry then? Is it generally short-staffed right now? Well, even before COVID, it was short-staffed. We've been talking about a health human resource uh, crisis, really, in long-term care for a number of years. Uh, But, of course, COVID-19 has uh, shone a great big magnifying glass on the situation. And the single-site order has uh, been beneficial in many ways in in, uh, reducing the spread of the virus. But it has um, also increased the challenge of staffing because there is no casual pool. So if someone is sick or, uh, you know, in fact gets COVID themselves, there's, there's no one there to replace them. So in some areas of the province, uh, particularly the Lower Mainland, Fraser Health uh, and uh, Vancouver Coastal, uh, some care homes are simply uh, running out of resources uh, to, to man those lines. And so uh, reaching out to family is a creative idea that uh, Karen Biggs and Meadow Place have come up with, and it seems to be working. And do you think that is viable for other long-term homes to try the same thing? Well, I think we'd have to, you know, each care home would have to assess that on an individual basis. It may be uh, very difficult for them to manage that process. Uh, You know, others that are larger and have more infrastructure in terms of managing, uh, you know, staffing might have more capacity to do that. But, you know, if I was uh, a family member that wanted uh, to participate or to find a way to to help and also to be closer to their loved ones. This this is a very creative way. So certainly would reach out to the care home and, and see if they're able to accommodate that. So when this is all over, Knockwood, right? We want this to be over soon. Um, what? How will we fix this staffing situation? Like what is being done about that, Terry? Well, a number of things are happening. The provincial government has come up with a health career access uh, program. And, and basically that's uh, bringing people into seniors' care uh, with no training whatsoever, giving them some experience on the job, and then connecting them to uh, online courses and then practicum placements that at the end of that uh, period they'd be uh, accredited healthcare aides and be able to work in the uh, in the seniors' care industry and at a, at a very good um, you know salary. So that's one program, but we can't rely just on a Made in Canada approach. So we're really uh, pressing with the federal government and provincial government to look at immigration pathways uh, to help us manage uh, this challenge of of, uh, human resources in uh, seniors' care. Because we know uh, overseas that other countries are recruiting internationally trained nurses. Uh, They're training, uh, they're accessing uh, those that have worked in the seniors' care industry and bringing them into their countries. And Canada really has not uh, done that. And, you know, we've, we've heard that we want to increase immigration levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's create some pathways that, that can increase our immigration levels as we need, uh, but also to bring them into a sector that desperately needs people. Uh, very quickly, Terry, have you heard anything about a vaccine distribution program, like how that's going to work? Are long-term care homes at the top of that list? I am assured uh, in a conversation yesterday that uh, officials are very, very actively working on this, Simi, and we, we, uh, we believe that uh, those on the front lines of seniors' care will be first on the list, uh, along with residents of long-term care as well. And So we're confident that that's being worked on and that it will be rolled out uh, as soon as possible. Well, that's good to hear. Terry, thank you for your time. 
Thanks, Jimmy. Terry Lake, BC Care Providers CEO, talking about the staffing situation on long-term care homes to the point where a number of care homes, including one in particular in Abbotsford, essentially asked relatives of the people who are in the long-term care home, hey, would you like to work here? We need the help. Plus, you would now be able to see your long-term, your your loved one who was in long-term care. And they had 48 family members who actually said, yeah, that's a great idea. We would like to do that. Other care homes are now looking at this option as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about what's going on in the Ministry of Education. It has been very challenging dealing with what's going on with COVID-19 in our schools, keeping students safe, trying to manage and mitigate all that. And now with the unveiling of the new provincial cabinet last week, there is a new education minister who's going to be in charge of it. So we thought, let's chat with her about that. Jennifer Whiteside joins us now to talk about the path ahead. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Simi. Nice to be here. So what are some of the priorities that you really want to focus on immediately in this new job? Well, there's no question, Simi, that, uh, that, that COVID really is the number one issue on everybody's mind. And I understand that uh, this period uh, has been terrifically stressful for everybody working in our education system, all of our teachers and educational assistants and principals and everybody, uh, all of the support staff. And of course, for parents and kids. It's a really, really challenging time. So our number one priority is to do everything that we can to continue to make our schools safe for uh, kids to learn in. Um, but of course, we have a we have a whole list of uh, a very important uh, a, a tasks that we that, that we want to get to as well. Yeah, let's talk about that list then. Some of the things yeah. in your in your mandate letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ones that really interested me is providing dedicated mental health teams in school mm-hmm. districts. Can you fl- mm-hmm. flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah, well, we know uh, just how important, and, and in fact, if anything, our, our experience through COVID has really highlighted the critical importance of having uh, a strong uh, supports for uh, for kids in our K-12 sector with respect to their mental health. And so uh, now more than ever, we need to prioritize uh, th- those issues. Um, we know that school counsellors are a really vital resource uh, for students' um, mental health. And in fact, we've hired an additional 245 teacher psychologists and counsellors uh, across the, the province in the last few years. So on top of that, uh, you know, our ministry will be working very closely with my colleague, Minister Malcolmson, looking at developing uh, dedicated mental health teams having those up and running uh, so that districts have more support on the ground uh, to, to support staff and students with these issues. When do you think that might be possible for people to access that? Well, I mean, I can tell you that it's, uh, it is it is in the pipeline, uh, that, that planning is underway, uh, that, that, that work has been, uh, ha- has been uh, ongoing uh, in, uh, in the Ministry of Education, uh, uh, and, and, and it's, you know, it's absolutely a priority for us. Okay. Now, what about, I know one of the other issues that came up was the integration of child care into the education ministry by 2023. What, mm-hmm. How do you envision that? What does that look like? Well, I mean, we're right at the beginning. Where I, I wouldn't even say we're at the beginning stages. We've just, I mean, I just, in fact, I'm having very initial conversations um, with folks in the Ministry of Education about how we start to plan for what that what that works uh, work looks like, and of course, uh, that that is work that um, uh, that, uh, that that uh, we're very excited to partner with uh, with um, uh, with uh, with Minister Chan on. Uh, and I, I, you know, I can't so I can't say really too much about it right now, other than it, it's clear that what that the objective there is to 
recognize the, the, the importance of uh, early uh, childhood education and early learning and to integrate that more uh, concretely with and seamlessly with, uh, with the rest of our education system and provide a, a more solid, a better early, earlier start. So right. I, I think it's very exciting work uh, and it's, it's good that we have a, a good long uh, horizon for, for planning that work. Right. Well, let's talk about what's going on right now, too. We, mm-hmm. we, we hear often mm-hmm. from the BCTF their concerns uh, about, you know, not enough masking going on. They need mm-hmm. more support to make that happen. Mm-hmm. What will anything change in the education ministry in terms of the approach of getting more masks in schools? Well, I think the first thing I want to say that, you know, our teachers are doing an incredible job uh, in every corner of this province supporting uh, supporting our kids at school. Uh, as are all of the the staff who work in our in in our sector and the principals and the, and, and the trustees, it really has been a tremendous effort to uh, to make sure that uh, we could open schools safely in uh, in in September. And in fact, we've had very good very good uptime. I mean, the vast majority ninety percent of, um, of of kids are are learning in in class um, uh, in, in an in class environment. So, and I, I can appreciate the just the amount of work it takes to make sure that that can happen on a on a daily basis. Uh, we have worked uh, with all of the partners across the education sector, the teachers, the support staff, the parents, uh, uh, to ensure that there are are uh, district plans, safety plans in place uh, to address uh, concerns as they arise at a local level. And so, I, I understand that there are that there is lots of discussion about uh, about use of masks and how to use uh, masks appropriately and safely. And masks, in fact, are are, are required to be worn uh, in the upper grades by uh, by kids in uh, in corridors and common spaces, by teachers in in common spaces uh, as well. Uh, so, I think that we, you know, this is a situation where we need to continue to work together. We need to continue to have dialogue and troubleshoot the local. Um, concerns or issues that that, that are arising. Um, yeah. Okay. So, how would you classify then your approach versus that of your predecessor, Rob Fleming? Like, how will things be different now? Well, I mean, I I, I don't I you know I think that my, my, my approach is very much going to be based uh, I think as it has been uh, in in our government and, and in our ministry previously. Um, uh, the approach is around right. making sure that we have the folks at the table who need to be there to uh, to work collaboratively on on developing the the plan and implementing and managing the plan to make sure that we can keep our schools open safely. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks so much to me. That's Jennifer Whiteside, the new BC Education Minister, uh, talking about the tasks that lie ahead for that ministry. Some pretty big jobs out there, right? Parents concerned, teachers concerned as well, uh, integrating childcare into the education ministry and more. Found a way in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So we're talking a lot about buy local because we want to encourage everyone out there to support your local stores and businesses during this holiday season. Now, this is officially buy local week. So we're marking that by talking to local business leaders in different communities about what's going on there. So this morning, we're joined by uh, downtown Surrey Business Improvement Association President Elizabeth Modell. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. me. It's a pleasure. How has buy local week been going? It's been, you know, actually, it's been quite busy this week. I was out and about uh, twice, and uh, just to see how the program and our shop local program was going, 
And um, I was pleasantly surprised. Everyone was doing the protocols, ensuring that they were staying far away from other people as possible with their masks on and face masks on as well. So I, I believe it's, um, it's really had some traction. I've noticed also that uh, some of the major credit card companies have gotten behind it as well. So that's really promising. Good. In what ways have they gotten behind it? What are they doing? Uh, they're doing special advertisements, um, both uh, on on radio as well as TV, about how um, local businesses shape the neighborhood and to uh, to ensure that uh, during this holiday season, if you can't get out, then do go online because many of the businesses have um, transformed themselves and, and gone digital during uh, the pandemic. So, and we've had students helping out with that in downtown Surrey as well to ensure that um, most of the business are trying to transfer onto e-commerce, particularly the small businesses. So we've we've uh, supported that through our Simon Fraser University students. Oh, nice. Okay, so the businesses are these students going out there? Are they volunteering their time and they're yeah. like helping them do this? Yes, that's right. And they all have a budget from our BIA of $500 in order to um, to have that business go digital. So, yeah, they've done domains. They've done all sorts of things. As you know, well know, the, the students these days are just so tech savvy. Yes. And uh, we've had a tremendous um, group this semester, and, and uh, they've just done a, an absolutely wonderful job for numerous businesses in the area. Okay, good then. So clearly businesses are also pivoting, right? Because that can be quite challenging. Yeah, businesses are very open to, to, um, to, 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 they recognize that they have to change in order to succeed and survive, actually. And during this time of uh, the holiday season is a time that the businesses make the most money for them to be able to um, go through some uh, patches of, of right. not being so busy throughout the year. So they recognize that in order to survive and then maybe have a little bit of leftover, they're going to have to, to transform the business. And, and uh, so, yeah, our students have done uh, retailer survival kits and, um, and have helped out uh, numerous businesses in um, the downtown Surrey area. So can you give us an idea then, Elizabeth, if somebody wanted to you know, shop locally in Surrey, what are some of the shopping areas that are being focused on? So, well, Surrey is so big, yeah, and so it's really hard. So we look at the town centers, um, and there are six town centers. So there's there's downtown, which is city center, and then there's Guildford, there's Cloverdale, there's South Surrey, and the missing one uh, coming to the top of my head. So not coming to the top of my head, but everybody knows their local areas exactly. to go, whether yeah. it be a specialty, um, a specialty fish shop, a specialty meat shop. It could be an ethnic shop. It could be um, something that just has beautiful gift shops right. um, that, you know, is, is very diverse and, um, and, and there's so much available. It's just, we're just encouraging people at this point in time to be safe, mask up, think local, shop local, and be local because you live in a community. You've chosen to live in an area, and that area um, you want to succeed. That's why you live there. And right. so, you know, do your part, and, and, and if you can't get out, shop local because a lot of the businesses are do have gift card programs now. Oh. So just ensure that, um, uh, that you, that's your first 
first thought. And now, how critical is this going to be for a lot of businesses? Is this a, is a kind of make a break period for people like they really need this business? They really do. This is a holiday season that many of the businesses make money, particularly the retailers, uh, to survive the the winter months, the January, February, March months. And and so having said that, that's why the big push is on uh, not only for local BC, which we're a sponsor of by Local Week, but also um, the Shop Local Holiday Program that we as the Downtown Surrey Business Improvement Association have also done um, as part of our give back to the business community. All right. Well, we hope it goes well. Elizabeth, thank you. Very welcome. Thanks for having us. That is Elizabeth Modell, the president of the Downtown Surrey Business Improvement Association. We've been kind of checking in with different uh, BIAs from different communities around uh, Metro Vancouver uh, to talk about Buy Local Week, which is this week. And so what that means is you don't have to do anything special, but as Elizabeth pointed out, just go to your neighborhood store. Buy something there. Buy something local this week. Do some holiday shopping, but just make sure, you know, you're doing it at a local store. Go check out a store perhaps that you've seen in your neighborhood that you've never gone into. This is definitely the week and the time to do that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is a landmark venue on Granville. So many people have a history there. They've gone there. They probably remember the first time they ever went there. And today marks the 90th anniversary of the opening of the Commodore Ballroom. So joining us now to talk about that is local historian and author Aaron Chapman. Hi, Aaron. Jimmy, how are you? I am good, thank you. Hey, do you remember the first time you went to the Commodore Ballroom? Oh, gosh. It was it was right after high school, probably. I, I, I think I... I would think I went and saw like one of the sort of local band nights where it was sort of five bands for five bucks that they used to do back then. Uh, but gosh, I've seen so many shows there and, and, and I ended up writing a book about the history of the Commodore. So it's a place that, uh, it's a place that's near and dear to me. It's amazing that the, that the building is 90 years old. That's, that's a rare thing in Vancouver. There's not many buildings in, in this city that can, that can celebrate a 90th anniversary. That's for sure. Yeah, no kidding. I think that's the thing, right? Vancouver is such a relatively young city. So tell me about the opening of the Commodore. Well, you can only imagine what it would have been like in, in December 1930 when the Commodore opened. Um, there was really nothing like it of its time. There had been, you know, lot, there were lots of sort of ballrooms in the city, where, uh, but nothing is really as ornate and nice as, as the Commodore at the time. It was probably nicer than a lot of people's homes uh, and, and whatnot. And then back then, uh, of course, it was big band music of the day. Right. Um, and that's where people sort of, it wasn't necessarily a place where people went to see shows where touring acts came through that was sort of happened at some other places in town but it's where people went to dance and of course back then it didn't have a liquor license so at the time you know the Vancouver police department would do these dry squad raids uh and they would go from nightclub to nightclub to make sure nobody was drinking and you know the great thing about the commodore is there's that sort of front door entrance on granville but you've got to walk up a couple of flights of steps so when the police would come by the doorman would hit a buzzer which would turn on a red light on stage and that would alert the band leaders that the police were coming, and and the band would stop when they were playing and play "Roll Out the Barrel," uh, which was a signal to the everybody in the audience that they should hide their liquor underneath their tables. And and, and this went on, you know, this kind of went on for years in Vancouver because a lot of clubs didn't get their liquor license until the 1960s. Right. So the Commodore, Commodore was one of those sort of brown bag clubs we sometimes hear from our our grandparents or our great grandparents about those stories. So uh, sometimes we think of our grandparents in a nice, you know, very very sort of nice, serene civilized setting but 
these people were pouring their own and then hiding their booze under the table. So, <laughs> God, what a great scene. Yeah. No kidding, right? We tend to think, oh, nothing fun ever happened back then. But no, people were having fun at the Commodore. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, most certainly. So when did it change then? So when did it go from being a ballroom to a, a venue where bands played? Well, that really happens in, in around 1969, 1970, when Drew Burns, the old proprietor, very famous proprietor in town of, of the Commodore, sort of takes over. And he's a guy that, that's open to change and open to interesting things. And, and in many ways, probably sets himself apart a lot of the other sort of club owners at the time. And, and so many other nightclubs start to, you know, they, they, they go for a while and then they, they stop. I'm sure the people who opened the Commodore in December 1930 couldn't imagine the place being open 90 years later. But the thing was with Drew Burns, he was open to different things. So while he was, a, you know, a fan of jazz music and even opera, he was open to having rock and roll uh, in the room. So he opened the clubs up to some of the promoters in town and also booking his own shows. And what you have in, starting is a, in a litany of, of shows, uh, these benchmark shows that came to town. And that's what sort of becomes special about the Commodore because then just about everybody comes through town. Kiss, January 1975. The year before with the New York Dolls in 1974. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, 1978. The Clash, 1979. U2, 1981. You know, there's these sort of just yeah. these amazing acts that, that roll through in very quick succession. And just about, you know, and, and the Commodore just sees just about every band on the way up or the way down, <laughs> you know, in, in history. It's amazing. That is so true. So do you think for Vancouver then, the Commodore has been the place where you go to see up-and-coming musicians? Well, you hit it just right on the head there. That's, that's, that's the place it, it's been. And, and it's also, you know, we kind of forget. We're sort of spoiled because we've had the Commodore around for so long. But it's, also, it's a place where we as Vancouverites have gone to. You know, there's very, there's very few places that are sort of multi-generational places that your grandparents can go to, you know, your parents went yes. to, and you can go to in town. You know, you can count them on one hand in Vancouver. You know, Stanley Park, the P&E, the Orpheum, the Commodore, uh, you know, the Penthouse in a weird way because it's been around so long, too. Also true. But, yeah, you know, but, but the Commodore has been a place where, where it's also seen just about every kind of band and every kind of entertainment uh, in our popular musical knowledge, you know, it's harder to find people who haven't played the Commodore and some of the bands that haven't played the Commodore than the ones that, that have, just because just about everybody's been through there. So what about some of the controversies, though, right? There have been good times. What about the bad times? Oh, gosh. Well, what's interesting is, you know, the co- people sometimes forget that, I mean, the Commodore's been sort of shut now because of COVID. You know, there's this great live stream. A show happening there tonight with Colin James playing live that you, you, you can watch. But, of course, it's, you know, right now, a lot of nightclubs have been closed. But this is a temporary thing. We know we're going to be, that, that, that building's hopefully going to be reopened again in the new year, you know, and we'll get back to what we're, what we're used to. But people forget, in 1997, the Commodore closed for three years in town. And just while the, the Drew right. had, had departed and, and uh, left ownership of it, and it was sort of tied up in the courts for a little while, a little before, House of Blues Live Nation took over in 1999. But within those three years, there are so many shows in Van- that, that didn't come to Vancouver. A lot of bands on the way up the coast played, you know, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle. And then they just turned around because there wasn't really a place to play uh, of its size. And we missed a lot of shows. And it was so weird to walk by, you know, the front door of the Commodore closed for three years and see graffiti on it yeah. and just that, that building dormant. So, you know, the Commodore means a lot to the city. In that sense, and that's so great. What's today that the mayor is is proclaiming December third Commodore Ballroom Day uh, today in Vancouver. So it, it's a, it's a it's a fitting tribute. It really is. Let's talk about the legendary floor, though, Aaron. 
Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's uh, that's such an amazing thing, you know. That that the, the everybody's and, talked about the, yes, you know, the, the old dancing sort of bouncy, floor, yes. the bouncy floor, and wondered what was in it. Now the interesting thing is, in in, in probably in December 1930, uh, no one could imagine slam dancing and pogoing and whatnot. <laughs> so, so that took a toll. That that's a that's a heavy that's a that's beating the catcher's mitt every day with some feet, you know. Like uh, and that happened, you know, so for this year. So in the in the mid 90s. They had to they had to uh, get into the floor and they had to replace uh, the original floor and a lot of people will remember um, the sections of the floor being auctioned off for yeah. uh, donations to the children's hospital. A lot of people have a you know maybe in their closet a piece of that floor with a little plaque on it. Um, so the floor at that time everybody figured out what was underneath. No one knew what exactly, and it was bundles of horsehair and old 1930s tires that had been spindled together and gave that floor that that bounce. So that, that was sort of the secret that everybody sort of found out at the floor. And, and it was interesting to find there was, a, there was a, 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 some jewelry that had somehow slipped down and some coins uh, <laughs> and even a bottle that somebody had put in there. Uh, so it was interesting when, when Drew put in the, you know, re, sort of re, do, redid the floor and put the new one. He snuck, he snuck a, a new bottle in that's somewhere underneath that dance floor. A uh, nice bottle of whiskey. So that's sitting there for that's when, like when, the, we, when I see it again. It's like the loony in the uh, ice sheet, right? Exactly. For the, <laughs> yeah. Exactly the same. Well, yeah. such history there. And Aaron, I know you've written about this many times. Where can people find those writings and those things that you've written? Oh, well, my book, uh, Live at the Commodore, um, the history of the Commodore Bomb. Available in bookstores everywhere, Amazon, uh, published by Arsenal Press here in town. And uh, I get into a little bit even with my newest book, uh, Vancouver After Dark, um, which is uh, about uh, the history of a lot of nightclubs in Vancouver as well. Love it, love it. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. That's Aaron Chapman, local historian and author. Check out his many books and one in particular on the history of the Commodore Ballroom, which today marks 90 years in business. And as Aaron pointed out, sure, okay, it's not open right now. There's no live acts there, but there will be again. And that is the fantastic thing about it. You got a story about the Commodore Ballroom you want to share? What was your first concert that you saw there? Simi at cknw.com.